Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bust through the defence. Just watch this. Good evening and welcome to the Molecast. Ronaldinho Gaucho, Ronaldo Phenomeno, and Hubert Carney. What do all three of them have in common? Three most decorated players of their generation, and none of them are going to be centurions. A dark day. The intro we were promised, I like it. <laughs> Mid season stock take for us as well. Um, Robert Carney is. The highlight omission, I think, from the Ireland squad, squad the meetup group that Stock was picked. Take. Stock take. Stock take. SKUs. Um, uh, I was also interested in the omission of a couple more centres who I thought would have made it. Luke Marshall and Tom Farrell. Um, what did you think of the list that was picked? There were some notable inclusions as well, like Will Connors, for example. Yeah, they left me cold, entirely cold. There's 45 players selected, so you know, it's to me, it's it's nothing, it's not a squad. No you real know, decisions made, no decisions made. Like, I don't know, some people were happy that it was released. I think one of the journalists, I think it was Will Slattery, wrote that it was great that they didn't have to scour through all the sports file photos to see who was invited to this meetup, but like they're together for a day. I think you can. I, I'm not blaming Will Sadri or the journalist for somebody making their job a little bit easier. But it, like, to me, it means fuck all. Just absolutely. Like it just, that's only a personal opinion, of course. But like when, when, a, when the squad is so numerous, like it doesn't mean anything. Well, a lot of the reaction to this and... Uh also, the news that Munster would have to sparingly use their international players during the interpros, which I presume all the provincial teams will have to do, but it was seemed to be it seemed to be uh, phrased as a Munster centric issue, um, has been this sort of ongoing outrage that we're never going to make a semi final. Still, everything is still placed in that context. Um, so, do you think maybe do you think that's just Still a hangover from the World Cup, or do you think this is going to be the ongoing theme of the next four years? Oh, I think it's a hangover from the World Cup. I think people will forget it sooner rather than later. Yeah, I, I thought the the mid season stock take announcement and the way it's received and the like the sports file reference. Um, I'm sure I've seen some people, but like Joe Schmidt's stock. Has, has fallen so far so fast. Uh, like if you rewind 12 months ago. And I think, you know, once the, and it's a real honeymoon period for Andy Farrell. Like he hasn't done anything wrong yet. Um, and you were, yet. He hasn't done anything yet. And you, you were saying to oh, months ago just about Schmidt, but that um, all political careers end in failure by, by definition. So, like I think, especially if you don't get a journalist to ghostwrite your book, particularly that I I think um, ordinary Joe, ordinary book, <laughs> no thirteenth month for anybody there, assuredly. Um, so look, I, I think Schmidt will be judged well, but um, you know I, he he seemed to rub everyone up the wrong way <laughs> coming towards the end of his tenure. Certainly, everybody who publishes anything. Um, and like I said, Farrell hasn't done anything wrong, and there's definitely uh, there's definitely an appetite for new broom and for people to be moved on, and you, you know, just that's the news cycle. Like, just, yeah, then all the like all the journalists will be on Farrell's back in oh, three geez, or four yeah, years. Yeah. You know, it won't be 
oh, he commands the room anymore. I'd be like, grumpy bastard. <laughs> oh, he never, he never glowering, glowering colossus figure won't give us any quotes. Yeah, he's never coached a team before. Oh, what experience did he have for international rugby? Oh, look at his tracker record. What oh, track record? Like, he was you know, tied in with the old regime. Um, so, so you don't of, have to buy the papers, lads, in two years. All of that, all of that stuff qualifies. Um, Completely lost my train of thought. I, I was thinking about the uh, guys not playing the matches, the interpro matches. So I think part of the thing is that, oh, why don't they give them a break when they play other teams? I guess the, the reason they give them a break is that uh, the matches happen over the Christmas New Year period. They happen in the lead-up to Heineken matches, which they're not going to miss out on. And then they happen in the lead-up to the Six Nations. So like you've got two... Uh, all the Heineken matches are, are make or break, but you've got two, like rounds five and six, which if you're in the mix for, you need your, your best team, so they're not going to rest up for that. And then you've got the Six Nations matches, and like it's a player welfare thing. Now, part of me does question this, and has questioned this for, since Jamie Heaslip went off after 60 minutes in a match against Glasgow, Going back to 2011, 2012, like years ago. That was just after Joe Schmidt left the dressing room for the first time. Yeah, that was just after like Joe Schmidt worst. You know, he started like he began. He started like he finished. He started like he began. He started like, yeah, he started. Anyway, and I was there going, this is ridiculous. Like, who cares if you play 60 minutes or 70 minutes or 80 minutes? Like, is the damage not done? And I'm sure there are people with access to more data, who have done more reviews, who can point to exactly the rationale why these guys are missing out um, in, in terms of player welfare. It's just, it's a little bit hard to believe. Yeah, it doesn't convince me either. You're, You're not, not like, alone. We are together in our Ludditism. You know, why, why don't... You may have facts, but reason, we have opinions. Yeah, but the reason I say that is like strength, strength and conditioning trends change that... It's all about functional strength and it's guys flipping over tires and like pulling cars and all that sort of stuff. And then a few years later, it's not. It's, it's about like yoga. It's, yeah, it's about yoga. Like, and it's, oh, you know, the modern. And you're there going, ah, come on. Like, it's just, guys got to sell something. I mean, if, he, if only just to freshen it up. So it's not to, I, ju- I, ju- I don't really, I'm not 100% convinced by it. The flip side is that you, we do, you know, I think part of the whole World Cup pandering is how navel-gazing any country gets. Like, I don't think... I mean, I'm sure New Zealand are giving out about the lack of All Blacks and how many All Blacks are playing overseas and, you know, going with Ian Foster again and da 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 But um, Tipperick and Moriarty haven't played for their clubs yet this season. So it's not... Like, it's not just here now. I think one of them is recovering from a virus... Was it Moriarty? I think is recovering from a virus. He's really looking forward to playing. But be that as it may, we're not the only country that, that do it. Like, mm. the Ospreys guys just missed four rounds of the Heineken Cup. Like, there's not that many Welsh teams in... There's only one there's Welsh team. There's only one Welsh team in it. In the Heineken Cup. It's the Ospreys. Um, Tipperick hasn't played any matches for them. So, like, it, it, it isn't just Ireland. And more to the point, uh, Lancer's uh, squad is absolutely amazing and they, everyone should be excited about seeing the likes of Will Connors Caelan Doris Max Deegan and Scott Penny Hugo Keenan all these lads are absolutely they're devastatingly exciting and if you are a regular attendee at like Pro 14 games you'll know that I think yeah they're good players but all the same people like to see internationals out in front of them it's one of the reasons why that's given by the IRFU as, you know, this is why we want to keep our players at home so that youngsters can go and see them. Um, so I think, like, I understand the reason why they would uh, players would get a break, especially those players who played in the World Cup. But there's other players, like, for example, Sean Cronin, who hasn't been named in Farrell's fucking stock take, who only played, he's only, Crow has only played 95 minutes of competitive rugby in six and a half months. You know, from the start of June, he had, I think, I think it was just four sub-appearances, basically. Each of them about 20 minutes long. Until, you know, we're halfway through no, or December now. So he's just played no rugby. So, of course, he can come out and play. He should be playing more. Um, And, you know, I think what you say there about the players who have performed well for Leinster, specifically the back rowers, I think, 
Uh, and it's been recognised by you know, the coaching staff, the Irish new coaching staff. It's, this ties in with something which you said in the previous pod, and that Farrell isn't coming from a Leinster background or a Munster background or an Ulster or a Connacht background. He's just... He doesn't come with that baggage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's interesting to see him go and select three young Leinster back rows, the three most sort of eye-catching, along with Tom O'Toole, the Ulster, a uh, very young prop. Certainly they were the names that jumped out at me. Keelan Blade I expected to be in there. Um, but you know, it was interesting to see Connors picked in as well and Doris and Deegan. Now Deegan, I suppose... Now, Deegan's coming up to about 60 Leinster appearances. Like, it's not as though he's had anything really handed to him on the plate. But, you know, I think I think uh, maybe Will Connors is still yet to make double figures appearances for Leinster. So, yeah, Will Connors sort of accelerated far past what would have been expected of him. Digs like a demented mole there. You were at the round four game between Leinster and Northampton. What did you make of it? I thought that the evolution, the since Matt O'Connor, you 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 refer to the the in your I refer in my head, and I think a number of other people did to the the double header where Matt O'Connor was in charge of the Leinster team after a lot of the guys had come back from the All Black match. So they came out mm. of a national squad where they'd lost narrowly to New Zealand. They played really really well. Uh, they're full of confidence. Hammered Northampton in. Uh, Franklin's Gardens and then turned around and were beaten and people made reference to it and the fact that oh double header oh you know this corresponding fixture seven seasons ago six six years ago um and I didn't see it like that at all I was fully expecting that Leinster would win that they get a bonus point I think that what Lancaster has done sports are very results oriented business completely results oriented Leinster results in the last you know double league champ or two league championships one hunting cup one losing so you can point towards the results if they don't win anything this season it won't be for doing the wrong thing I think that what Lank I think that with Cullen selecting Lancaster to come has freed up his head to I don't know pick the team and to sort of plan out the season and then what Lancaster has done I think to a lesser extent getting Felipe Contaponi in as a fresh voice, all that sort of stuff. Like Cullen's made all those decisions and Len- Leinster are really impressive now as as an organisation. Like what they're doing has put them into a, a bracket with like Saracens and Toulouse really. Mm. But like ahead of Toulouse, uh, Len- you know, Leinster and Saracens are, are quite separate. Um... There's quite a there's quite a bit of daylight between them and Toulouse. I just I think Toulouse have managed to sort of reestablish themselves and have kept the the cultural identity of the club while coming back up to success. So when the goalpost seems to have changed a bit, that they're you know the top fourteen seems much more competitive. That there's an awful lot of money coming in. There's a lot of competition for players, but Toulouse have a very strong identity, and it's I guess the Toulouse identity. Mm. They, they play a different style than a lot of other top fourteen players. So, and they're successful. So, that that's why I, I sort of refer to those. And um, about the match in particular, I was pleasantly surprised with um, how well Jordan Larmer did, as as referred to afterwards, the nuts and bolts of full back play. Like he he took a few catches. Where he had to come into the ball, like he had to, he had to dominate the space. He had to run up. He had to jump in the air and catch it. Um, because Larmer struck me as a winger playing fullback, and my life watching rugby, which goes back to David Campesi as wingers playing fullback, is that they can't do it. Like they're, they're just. There's been so many wingers who are poor fullbacks and really, really good wingers, and it's just a waste of their time. Like the most recent example. In Irish rugby history is Luke Fitzgerald, who just wasted a few years of his career attempting to prove that he was a fullback when he was like a really, really good left winger and a mediocre to adequate fullback. Um, which I think he, he proved when he when he came on against like Argentina in the twenty fifteen World Cup. He was probably Ireland's best back in that match. And you sort of go to yourself, why, why didn't you just play wing all the time? 
you're deadly at it. So, but he's 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 not alone in that. Like, and it does go all the way back to Campesi. So, I sort of felt that about Larmer. I also was impressed with Larmer at different instances that he he seems really coachable and really keen to learn. And you know, when he sort of gives, he's like, he has that. He seems to have a huge confidence in his ability from being always good at sports. That oh yeah, just but like also also hungry to learn and. Um, he gives something completely different playing a fullback than I think. I, don't like know, any, I think any Irish team has had. Like Jim Staples was a really attacking, exciting yeah. attacking Irish fullback, but like Ireland had feck all ball when Jim Staples played. They certainly weren't running that from their own forty meter line. Now, Larmer hasn't done that at international level yet. It you know from the start of a match in any sort of meaningful game. Mm. So let's let's see what happens. Let's see if he's picked there because Jacob Stockdale is playing well at fullback, but. It was very encouraging um, from the sort of perspective of moving past Rob Kearney. And then the other one, the other obvious one is like Keelan Doris was just brilliant. I thought, like, this guy's great. Um, he looks like a test player. What do you think of Doris? I'm always, um, I'm definitely predisposed to be rooting for um, Max Deegan because I kind of just, I've always liked him as a player since I watched him at the under twenties World Cup in, the same. in in twenty sixteen, and he was so explosive and he had such a, a knack for try scoring. He ended up did he end up winning player of the tournament in that? He did. He did. Um, that I've been sort of waiting for him to grab the uh, number eight position um, and take it for himself and. It, as it turned out, when the biggest opportunity came, himself and Doris kept on trading the shirt last year and they were shoehorning Deegan into six, um, which doesn't seem like a very natural fit for him. And uh, I never really thought that Doris got the upper hand over Deegan in terms of selection, but evidently, um, like, Leo and, and uh, Lancaster did. And more recently, it's been Max Deegan as a sub on the bench and... Doris is the starting number eight. And the phrase that I think uh, that Gavin Komiski used was that Doris had gone mainstream at the weekend, um, presumably by playing one of his best games for Leinster and scoring a rare try um, in the sort of like most widely attended game or the, the game that's maybe most widely attended by uh, the general public rather than the Leinster supporting rugby public. Um I really still don't see that much between the two of them. Um, but there was something that you said to me during the game, because I meant to kind of try to keep an eye on, on Doris during the game. And due to the nature of the game, I didn't. Um, but you said to me something that he's like, he's always just at the, at, at the right place. for the, uh, uh, He's always around the ball. He's always involved in the play. He's always, uh, uh, he's very typically at the breakdown, at the bottom of it or hitting it. Um, and I thought, um, his game on Saturday also featured um, the most notable running of his Leinster career as well, which was very encouraging to see. But I, I mean, I still think they're two fabulous talents uh, vying for one place. And I don't know, I don't, I don't see it as Doris going mainstream and Deegan not going mainstream. I think they're they're both. Yeah, there. I think I think if Deegan was from another province, so I don't mean like a Leinster guy playing for another province. I mean if Deegan was from Munster or Ulster, there would be. Uh, articles about which one would you pick quarterback, and co controversy. quarterback controversy and I think I'm going to make up the stat so I, was, I can't remember exactly what it was but it was in the I'll give you the gist of it it was in the um, under 20 World Cup and they're writing about Doris it was a poor uh, world, it was a very poor World Cup campaign for Ireland but Doris's numbers were either 15-15-15 or 20-20-20 and it was number of carries number of tackles number of sort of uh, breakdown contributions and he also played in the line it, and it, that's that was always something that stuck with me because I was sort of surprised. I thought he was a more natural fit for a six, and Deegan as eight last year, and Cullen kept on picking it the other way around, and they see what they see. Obviously, more than we do, and um, sort of remembering, going back and remembering those stats. Like one one of the things that I thought was always a strength that he slipped when. Probably realised it more when Heaslip retired, and you're trying to do a career retrospective. Is that you're going? Ah, yeah, he was, but he was good at everything. 
he gave you everything. There was no sort of bits that you had to fill in, you know. So, like, where would you, where would you point the the sort of the finger at Ireland's back row that played in the World Cup when you go, oh, well, like Josh Vanderfleer makes loads of tackles, but like he doesn't hammer guys like Levy does, you know. Didn't win it. Didn't win it. Breakdowns. You know, but he's not a and he's, he's, up, and he's not a great. He, but yeah, the more to the point, he's not a great breakdown jack. Like he's a great ball carrier. He does make shitload of tackles. Then you go like CJ isn't really a line out option. You know, he's he's lost his dynamic carrying. Peter Armani is a brilliant line out player. You know, makes big jackal plays. Doesn't offer you anything really in ball carrying. Whereas make a lot of tackles. Either. You get it or do make a lot of tackles. You know, and you're trading off those sort of shortcomings and you're trying to get the right balance and whereas you look at a player like look at he's look at Falatel and you go my like they're good at everything like, yeah. they're always good at everything like Falatel Falatel's really underrated in Ireland he's Falatel fucking brilliant oh, he's just so good like before the last Lions tour I know Billy didn't was the last one Billy didn't go on Billy didn't go on the last one yeah they managed was he injured yeah broken arm yeah they managed to like draw that series without Billy Von Apollo and I was thinking but I, I was saying beforehand I'd pick Falato as my number 8 ahead of Billy now in, in hindsight I'm I just would have going, picked Falato at 6 I think yeah like they ended up picking Shawnee and Warburton Shawnee and Warburton you could have had Billy Falato and Shawnee or well Warby was the Warby wasn't he was the captain yeah he was when he came back yeah So, but, but nonetheless I think Falto's deadly. Like he, he used to play for the Dragons, and he, no matter who he played against, against any of the Irish provinces, he'd be the best player in the pitch. Like it, it, it didn't matter. <laughs> like I'm playing for the Dragons, he was so good. And then he, if I watch Welsh matches closely, I'd be like, look at, it, look at everything this guy does right. I just oh, he does he's everything. One of my well. favorite players, Falto. I think brilliant. To go back to that, um, do you think that Deegan is is as rounded as Doris? Judging by that sort of like, I do. 20 think, points, 20 rebounds, 20 assists. Yeah, Deegan, <laughs> Deegan wins uh, last season. Deegan's a really good tackler. Uh, he wins Jacko breakdowns. Like he's a complete 5 2 player. You know, he can run, he can hit, he can hit with power, he can throw. And I don't know what the fuck it other one is. Catch. He looks, Catch. Good, looks good in jeans. He can sell jeans. He's <laughs> got good face. Um, <laughs> now, Deegan, Deegan is, I think that's why. Uh, it's it's uh, it's such a rivalry is because the players are only slightly different. Like when they're beside each other, we're on the pitch. They they're the same build. They wear the same tape, uh, tape yeah, on yeah, the ears. Like they're, they're, Ackford, they're difficult yeah. to tell apart. Uh, and like Deegan, Deegan's handling, I would say, is better than. Doris's, but Doris seems to break more tackles than Deegan. Doris threw some nice passes at the he weekend did, yeah. as well, though. As well. He absolutely did. Yeah. And I would have said before that Deegan is a better line-out player, but like Doris is a good line-out option now. I, I, that was one of his work-ons. It was said that it was said the passive voice. He said it in an interview at the start of the season that that had been a work-on for him over the summer was to become more comfortable in the air. And some players aren't comfortable in the air. Apparently still- Dan Levy is like... Uh, fly phobic or whatever what's the word for it? being scared of flying I should know just watch this <laughs> great possible play though. this shows how dangerous they are with the ball in the hands um, there were other matches on as you were hinting at um, the most notable one I think is probably the monster one because I said to you guys in a couple of podcasts ago where oh, were they going to get? I don't like to be reminded of this. Where were they going to get? Where were wrong. they going to get their big away win now, now to get out of the group? I think I said that they'd probably win in Paris. Uh-uh. I said they might beat Saracens over there. I don't know why I said that. But as soon as it was out of my mouth, I was thinking to myself, "That's not very fucking likely." I thought Munster would beat. I certainly odds wise, I thought Munster were attractive at the weekend, and I thought that they had. It, well, I didn't. I thought that they had the capability to do it. I thought that the sort of the mentality was there. I didn't think necessarily it was guaranteed result, but I thought that at the sort of the at the period of development, having been beaten by Saracens for a few times, new coaching ticket, Van Gran more established. If that doesn't contradict itself, uh, and the fact that Saracens were turning around their team again, like you go back to this, oh, like you know, these guys had a, a, like a, a West before their quarter final. That's why they were good. And they're going, ah, like rugby's rugby. I mean, you, you got to be better for playing matches, really. I mean, but you don't see when you saw <laughs> uh, Owen Farrell and the Saracens team, 
Did you not think? No, like to me, that's a name out of out of anyone. Yeah, well, no, actually, not out of anyone. When I saw the combination of Farrell and the three of one Apollos, went, most aren't going to win that one. And I was the one who said it, admittedly, about three or four weeks ago that I thought they would win in Saracens. But once I saw those three names together, just didn't see it from Munster. Because the Munster have got this, uh, you know, success or failure playoff, really, I think, against um, Racing. Now, I think they'll win that one. I thought they'd win that one. Yeah, you, you thought they did. You thought they would. I think they'll win it. I now I think, think they'll, they'll win, win it. it. Yeah, Do you still think they'll win it? Yeah. Okay, but the the point I'm getting well, to... Well, fuck. Actually, no, hang on. Sorry. How, how many injuries do they have now? There's a lot of... Tyburn is definitely gone. gone. Conway's probably not gone. That's a head knock. And Peter Romani. Peter Romani, he's an adductor strain. So that's not that game doesn't happen until January. Oh, yeah, he's not going to play in three weeks. Yeah, so they'll probably have Carberry back. John Ryan is a calf strain. Now, we all know that calf strains can go on and recur for a long time. Especially if you're a prop. Especially if you're a prop. If you got, like you're putting a lot of strain through those. He won't be able to scrummage anyway. Now, the key one is Tyg Byrne, obviously. They were beginning to experiment with Tyg Byrne at six, O'Mahony at seven. It cuts down on there. Um, it cuts down a little. They bring back in Tommy O'Donnell. I was, I was about, sorry, I was going to say that. It cuts down on their six-two split. They bring in Clota, Tommy O'Donnell, Jack O'Donoghue. So they'll still have a lot of back row subs. Arnold both is back as well. Arnold is back. Yeah, so I think... Jesus, they have a huge amount of back row players. I think. I think, Munster, not, not, I think Munster will be Rassing. Yeah, but you see, I think Rassing are still... You know my... What did I call Rassing? Flutes. A team of... Flutes. You know, and that's what I think of them. I think they're a team of flutes. They're really talented. And they're not all flutes. But there are a number of flautists among them. Uh, what uh, what I was trying to arrive at earlier on was the fact that what's the most unmonster like thing of this performance for them in the group stages isn't the fact that they might not get out of it. Obviously, it'd be very monster like to get out of it in extremely dramatic fashion at the mm. last minute as well. But it's the fact that it's um, clutch moments. Not taking their chances. Three ties in a row now. They've they've let it slip so they didn't take the the, the kick towards the end of the goal uh, the game last week to get a oh yeah, point. yeah kicked into the corner and yeah. they um, missed the drop goal against Racing uh, I'm sorry I didn't see the first and missed a kick to go go hot 9-3 up yeah in, in the Saracens match yeah what the Munster match the result uh, left me thinking about was Johan van Gran and like where does this leave him because he was on um he was on a Duds Springbok coaching ticket, um, but an international rugby coach. Munster hired him. And um it was kinda of like he got out of Dodge and like all of a sudden he had this high profile job coaching one of the most story teams in Europe. Um similar to what Dave Rennie went up to well, like more so than what Dave Rennie went up to to coach um to coach Glasgow, sort of like Northern Hemisphere experience head coach experience, you know, top-ranked club experience. Um, and the man that he replaced, like, the tables really shifted because Van Graan must be sort of thinking as a head, God, like, I could be a World Cup winning coach. As it is, Felix Jones is now the World Cup winning coach. And um, instead, he's looking at, like, it's it's much tougher for Munster now to qualify. And I'm still saying, like, oh, I think they'll be rasking and all that sort of stuff. But... Um, it was a tough pull and they sort of made it harder for themselves by not taking those kicks and you're like not taking the, the kick at the end being the obvious one. There was nothing in it. You're, you're not going to get anything by scoring a seven-pointer. Like You're still going to lose the match. You're still going to get the bonus point if, if you score. It's just miles harder. Whereas you turn down the kick that's going to get you the bonus point. You're just there thinking like who who's making that decision? Like Who's mentally preparing these guys? Who's executing on the pitch to sort of go with that call? It was a terrible call. Um, and when Van Gran came up, and this is like the honeymoon period that we referred to with Farrell, he was relentlessly positive. Yeah, absolutely. Relentlessly positive. And you're there thinking, ah, that'll be worn out of you. <laughs> that'll be worn out of you by a few long winters when you can't leave the country in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and that that's, that's and yeah. sort of the challenge of the job. And, and that's why I think when you look at Stuart Lancaster, like, you know, I'm obsessed with Stuart Lancaster, but 
you look at that and you go, geez, Lancaster sort of has the best of both worlds in that he really just does the coaching and um, he's like, Cullen's going to take the flack if, if it goes wrong. Uh, whereas Van Graan takes it. I think anything good that's happened at the moment, people are going, oh, you can really see Larkham's. Absolutely. He's in a no-win situation. And you can, I, I absolutely agree with you that he was relentlessly positive his first season especially. And, and now results aren't going his way and you know he's more he's more downbeat about everything he's more downbeat about his players being injured and he's he's more downbeat about the coverage they're getting and um you know it's it's well i find it really noticeable anyway um like he's 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 just beginning there's little bits of Matt O'Connor creeping in there, giving about, oh, we, we don't have access to our internationals. You know, you, mate, you knew this was the story. Like, you knew exactly what you were getting into. And if you didn't, it's your own fault for not knowing what you were getting into. Um, and plus, like, if, if you're a coach, you're think it's obvious by the way the appointments have been made. So we were talking about Dave Rennie a few weeks ago and the fact that the Aussies given a four-year deal. Ian Foster, since the last podcast, has been installed by the Kiwis immediately after the World Cup. And like they have a history of giving their coaches four years. They only gave him two. They only gave him two. So, But I still think like if you're a coach, you're looking at every four-year cycle and you're kind of, from a career perspective, going, where, do, like, where does this leave me? Like, where, Where's my stock going to be in four years' time? Like, What's my sort of trajectory? And... um. I won't say it's the only consideration, but like you've you've constantly got to be thinking about that sort of career move. Like one of the other one of the other results, I always sort of keep a bit of an eye. I don't, I'm not as obsessed as Raj by and by Stuart Lancaster, but the fact that La Rochelle won in Glasgow again looked at the odds, didn't actually book that one. But I went, oh, like I think La Rochelle could beat Glasgow, and it was because like La Rochelle have good players, but it's also because I think like the European Cup matters to O'Gara. And the fact that he's like scratched three matches to start off with, like I think he he'll want to win that one. Like he'll he'll want to sort of prove because he must be thinking like where where is he going to be in in four years' time? Uh, where is he going to be like if it doesn't work out for Farrell? It's pretty better that it does. Like what, what Agara wants, I'd imagine. Well, what I'd imagine for Agara is that um, he's he's got to sort of have his best season with La Rochelle when Farrell's finishing, whenever that is. You know, like, Algaris spoke yeah, about this. Yeah, you want to be on the up. He gives really good interviews. He wants the kids to be in pretty much the same school all the way through, which is where I think La Rochelle is really good. And I think we talked about this a number mm. of weeks ago. Like, it's a really good position for him because there's loads of clubs down that direction. But also, like, being around Bordeaux means you can you can get to and from Dublin. Like, on, there's a direct flight. Uh, why year. would he want to go to Dublin anyway? Yeah, well, but to coach Ireland. No, sorry. So, like, I'm talking about a car because I think if you're a Van Gran, you have to be thinking about it from that career perspective. What do you think that Van Gran is? It, what do you think his next step would be going to the Springboks? International rugby. Um, you know, the Springboks would be his preference, but like Italy. You know, I think, I think if you're really successful in the Northern Hemisphere and there's an international job, like Italy, Scotland, like it, it, it doesn't like it doesn't have to be the box. Like you're look if you're a professional coach, like and you've been at a high level when you're young, you want to be as like you want to coach international rugby. That's yeah. that's the biggest. And if you can do a good job with the Italians, like, look at Eddie Jones going to Japan. It looked like a graveyard. It looked like, oh, he's got that gig because he speaks Japanese as well. That really helps. Like, Eddie Jones has reinvented himself. Yeah, absolutely correct. Um, coming from Japan, which kind of looked like a like a pension scheme for him. Mm. But it was just another stepping stone on the incredible life of Eddie Jones. What about the incredible life of Dan McFarland? Yeah, that... Uh, McFarland's a far more phlegmatic character than Van Gran. Like McFarland, I think, is equally is consumed by rugby, but gives the impression that he's not. And I think that's one of his great tricks. Like, um, 
and I've met I've met Dan. Like I was on a coaching course with him. He's one of the first guys I've met, and um, he probably is like that. He probably like he McFarland. I think he'd come to terms with it much quicker if it all ended. He, I think he'd go off and he'd do something else and he'd be kind of happy with his life. Yeah. He's, 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 his personality tend, tends towards that. That was my impression of him. Well, it's not going to come to an end for any time soon. No. Because he's got a little jewel going out and winning games from left, right and centre. <laughs> a fella that we call Eaton Square's own little Johnny Cooney. John Cooney could run anything. <laughs> 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 Give him the FAI. He'll turn it around. I'm off to meet the Queen tomorrow. <laughs> John Cooney, uh, we 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 were, um, and in particular me, were <laughs> had been calling that he would be Ireland starting nine. I think that that is another uh, view that has gone mainstream as he wins another game with the clutch moment against Harlequins. Um, what else is there to be said about this Ulster team? Probably the best is yet to come. I mean, Jack McGraw will come back into that team. Uh, he can only strengthen it. And you were replying to David Blair's tweets about like... Oh, yeah. Uh, I like think there's Hume, talent there. Hume and Curtis. Curtis was one of my favourite players yeah. of the recent 20s teams. And Aaron and Sexton. Aaron Sexton. So Sexton, uh, again, the guy from Bucks whose name I always confuse. Jordan Conroy, isn't it? Yeah. Um, was... was the superstar of the sort of the recent tournament or two tournaments, two tournaments ago. ago in the sevens. Um, but the fact that Sexton is getting exposure at sevens level, I think is good because we were going through like the five of the 13 guys who were at the 2018 um, Hong Kong tournament mm. are playing into pro rugby. And Sexton isn't, he's not like a sort of a project. He's not like this sprinter that they're trying to convert into a rugby player. He's a guy from a rugby background, rugby house who's shit quick. All backs that Ulster are producing again, just like the Tom best. O'Toole is not a back. You take that back. Is Tom O'Toole one of the rare Ulster men to play forwards for them this He's year? He's a heavily set, yeah, mustachio prop in, in the mould of a, a young JJ McCoy. Uh, he's very good. He's a good player. He's been included in the uh, the annual back room stock take. Box the midweek, the midweek slapdown. <laughs> the midweek slapdown. Yeah, he's um, he's he played quite a bit last season. Funnily enough, less this season. Um, but it, I, you know, last season it was like himself and Eric O'Sullivan were actually getting a lot of games. Eric played a huge number of games, but Tom O'Toole played a good bit as well. And he's he's a guy with real physical potential. He's not Andrew Porter. Nobody is, but he's a, a strong and athletic. And he has the bit of a brace of character that actually is no stranger to Ulster Fords. Uh, so it's good to see one coming out. And um, like I think I don't think he's going to make an impact in the Six Nations, but uh, I think he's a good player. He's a proper um, like I would sort of rank him in the same sort of belt as Alton Delan. Like he can make a big impact. I don't think he's going to, you know, give you 60 starts over a test career. And the flip side to the established internationals not playing three derby matches over the Christmas period is, and you were referring to Leinster and sort of the, the number of squad players and how good they were, is that it gives guys an opportunity to to establish themselves playing first-team rugby in pretty high-profile high matches. Because the reason that all those derby matches are on is because it's a holiday period like the Italian teams play each other, the Scottish teams play each other, the Welsh teams play each other, the Irish teams play each other. Like the, it, it makes box office population uh, every sort of sense. It makes sense to yeah. play those matches at the time that they're played. It gives guys like Hume and Curtis the opportunity to to stamp their presence or make their presence known. Now, like they're in competitive positions that you referred to in that same tweet where you said like McCluskey and Marshall aren't going anywhere soon, but. Competition is really good. The other thing I think coming out of the Leinster match was how well Tyke Furlong played oh, by being, very and I think in direct response to being dropped because in probably direct and, response to your comments. I well, in direct response, like I think the difference being you were talking about the World Cup hangover and like are we just constantly going to go back to it? And I like looking from again from obviously from the outside, you look at Furlong and you go, God, like that that's a guy who like he needs a lift. He needs like you know a pat in the back and a kick in the hole type of thing. And if you don't have Andrew Porter. 
you sort of have to, you know, cajole them back into playing well. Whereas if you do have Andrew Porter, you just drop him. And like all of a sudden you forget about the World Cup and you think about like what's what's in front of you, which is what you need. And that's good. And like that's why with the the selection for the Six Nations, curious to see how Farrell how Farrell goes about it. Like does he sort of go for more of the same? Does he does he drop guys enough to get a response from other guys? He, I think he should drop Hendo. Like I've gone, I wouldn't say full circle because full circle means you come right back around to where you started. I've gone about one hundred and eighty degrees on Hendo. So, like there, that is the most frustrating player in Irish rugby, and he has been dropped before. And he comes back in and gives you a couple of good games, and then his performance goes off the boil. So I would, I would say, like, if if I were in Andy Farrell's selectional shoes, I'd be saying, handle your drops. Bring back Dev. Bring back Dev, or or the other fellow who played well at the weekend, Patsy Klein. Yeah. Who had a very good game. Now I felt he had a, I felt he was outplayed. Really, obviously, the previous by Will Skelton. Wow, big Will, big Will style. And and uh, Super Mario Otoje, um, but he is very good over in uh, Vicarage Road or wherever it is they play. You made the point to me that Skelton was the best Aussie second. Oh, no, no, I never even considered him as having been missing from the Wallabies. And as soon as you said it, I went, "I oh, is," and he gives you something completely different. Yeah. Like he's one of the best second rows in the world. He's absolutely an enormous human being. Like I, and, I was uh, so impressed with him down in Tolman Park. I. I thought he bullied the shit out of Monster down there. And, you know, the stuff about raising his knees into the tackles, like, you know, maybe not really. And, like, putting his hand on people's faces or on the ground, like, yeah, that's because he's actually a big bully. You know, he's the one, that's that's what to give, that's enforcing stuff. Like, he was throwing his weight around down there. And nobody could stop him. Someone seemed to piss him off as well. Munster are actually really pissing Saracens off this year. I, I couldn't get over. Uh, I couldn't get over like a, a Munster doctor. No, a head of, head of medical, you. Oh, sorry, head of adject, adjectival. I couldn't get over that. He would start mouthing off to, uh, to a guy on the field. Like, pff, let himself down there. Let us, like, that's, that's a, Bad. Broke his hippopotamus out. Is that what you're saying? He broke the hippopotamus. Well, listen. What more importantly, uh, Munster had a job to do, which was to eliminate Saracens for the good of everyone else in this fucking tournament. <laughs> and they fucking totally dropped the ball. <laughs> now that said, Saracens are going to finish second in the group, having a away quarterfinal, and there's lots of tough teams they could play away in a quarterfinal where they wouldn't be favourites. Especially if they're still trying to get out of the relegation position. They won't be trying to get out of relegation, but then Saracens are really good. Like the thing about Saracens is they're a lot better. They're a lot better coached than almost every other side in the Premiership. The only other side in the Premiership who has as good a coach as Rob Baxter. Like your man Boyd is a good coach, but he's not as good as Mark McCall. So Saracens, even if they were only had, you know, one third of the players they have or half the players they have. Will still be a top four side. Like they, they won't be in trouble come April. They, yeah, and they'll have. They, but they were, but they'll be too far off the pace to win, to win their league. So they'll be looking to win Europe. What if more shit hits the fan about them? What do you think Europe? will hit the fan though? What things left? Well, the obvious question, sorry, to answer my own questions, how come they can still feel the same yeah, how come team? The same team. Well, that question. What, what, what if what if what I if, asked it? You answer it. What if Rob Baxter picks at that wound again, or the mouthy Exeter chairman Tony Rowe? Yeah, like what if they pick at that wound again when they get fed up with them, or they hammer someone, or something else goes away, or something else gets real? Like you know, like doesn't this clearly the whole picture hasn't been painted? It's so not something. plausible, is it? That like all their players are taking a pay cut just so they can stay with Saracens. Yeah. Not one of them has broken ranks. Like Will Skelton, there's a lot of people who would like to pay him five hundred k. To come and, and play for them, uh, you know, and he's and I, I pick him because he's not somebody who's who's a Saracens Academy player. 
but he's like that's a guy who has monster value. Like think of how much they like if Perpignan were, were looking at him, think of how much they love second rows. They'd probably sell Paul Goes's fucking wine cellar to get out of. They don't build him like that anymore. He won't like that. He's one of a kind. Some of the fans not happy with that. So we had a discussion about CVC and uh, hypothetical tournaments of the future. Oh, you love this one, don't you? Guardian ran a story. Um, not the best rugby source, it must be said, the Guardian. But they ran a story about the potential future um, format of the European Champions Cup, which was six groups of three and double-legged. So 18 teams in the tournament, six groups of three, and a double-legged semi-final. It sounds so fucking stupid. It sounds like... Well, you know what came straight from the Premiership? It sounds like the thing they might do. Yeah, it came straight from the... The Guardian, like, Paul Rees especially, is just an absolute stoolie for the Premiership. He's a moustache one, isn't he? Yeah, Kits is the one with the mask. Yeah. Mekon. Yeah. so, you know, I don't think that had like a byline, but I'm pretty sure it's just Reese just saying whatever the Premiership wants them to say. Um, you know, I think if the Premiership wants to say it, it's because CBC told them to say it. It doesn't, like, to be honest, it doesn't make any sense. We, when we talked about it, my reaction was that the, the European competition as it is will be gone. Like, the, you get a CBC by. The stakes and they have the the English league. They buy the into the Pro Fourteen. They then have five of the six domestic sorry countries from the domestic comp mm. of the six nations, and they just merge them into a British and Irish league or into like whatever you, way you want to say with the Italians involved. And uh, there's your competition, and then it's just a matter of shoehorning in a match against like some. Sort of number of matches against the French, be it a semi-final winner or takes a final, all. winner takes and then like a winner takes all Southern Hemisphere match and yeah. like wh- like whatever sells. But it's hard to see a place for the Heineken Cup in that, given that you're immediately getting cross-border rugby. Like and again, like to like the Welsh want to play against the English, the Scots want to sort of prepare, pretend that they have their own say, but they just do whatever the English do, and then you know pretend that they're independent. And Ireland will hot take. Ireland will go along with whatever. The border regions is the only gets, about story here. Ireland will go along with whatever gets sufficient game time for to pay guys to play domestically and to prepare the team to play internationally. Back to the topic at hand. What do you think of this tournament? This eighteen team tournament is that is that a a fly in the ointment or uh, senator? It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. It's not going to happen because there is going to be no European competition. <laughs> yeah, like it's a white flag from the European Cup. Are you ringing the death knell or waving the white flag? I'm ringing the death knell. Okay, Ireland will do whatever it takes to um, get their players' domestic game time and prepare them for the international team. Yeah. That's because that's the stated aim of all the provinces. Correct. What? No, I think it's just no. that, it's stated. It's, it's, it's the model of the IRFU. I, I don't. I don't think it's been stated. But me looking at it, that's what that's what they're trying to do. Like ha, have a have a successful national team. You want to keep your players at home, so you've got uh, control over them. The, the reason that the guys are being rested at Christmas time. So you uh, can tell their coaches where to select them. Yeah, you know pick that's all your, pick all your best runners at fullback. Um, yeah, you know you go. I want him to play this position. You're not going to ring up fucking Gary Gold or whoever and go. By the way, make sure you pick uh, such and such a tight head. Go, yeah, pick that loose head a tight head. Like like they did Andrew Porter. The English coach is going to tell you to fuck off. He's not even going to say yeah, thanks for the advice. He's just going to tell you to fuck off and put the phone down. You know as. This comes up time and time again, and you said it about seven years ago. If there was a better way for the IRFU or more cost-efficient or better way to run than via the provinces, they'd try and do it. They can't. The provinces are the best way to run rugby in this country. I'm not sure of exactly, but do you know what I mean? Sometimes when, 
like you get the sense that news of four now it's news of four it used to be the the PCRG were giving about about how the provinces, you know, that international rugby pays for the provinces, and you're going, well, rugby has to run some way in this country, and you can either run it like the fucking FAI, or you can run it like it's run by the IRFU. Do you know what I mean? Am I making sense there? Mm-hmm. Am I leaving a few words unsaid? Um, no, I don't think so. I think I think the comparison with the FAI is a good one because, um. One of the lines that came out with the FAI a few weeks ago was that, like, the reason that Trapattoni got paid so much money, and it wasn't just Dennis O'Brien, the reason that Martin O'Neill and Roy Keane were on such big money for any manager of a national team in Europe, never mind, like, one as um, spectacularly unsuccessful as Ireland, was that they were really highly paid. And the argument for it was because all the money is in the international game, but it, it's got to be beyond that. And I, I think... Like all that money that gets generated is because football's so popular, it's because it's so widely played, it's because um, it's a relatively low cost sport. Like, you don't need a massive amount of infrastructure to put in place with it. And if you don't, but if you don't invest, if you don't take the money from wherever it's earned, like from the international game and invest it into your grassroots, like the whole thing falls down. Um, like the whole thing is just shambolic. So I think ultimately you go, you go back to what the RFU and the split, like the RFU always, the, from the time of Francis Barron, from the time of professionalism, Francis Barron was sort of the first czar of English professional of, of the RFU when it went professional. He wanted a 50-50 split on spending between the professional game and the amateur game. And the professional game, like they don't bankroll their clubs. So the professional game is the national, is like the, the English squad. And everything else is is amateur. Like all the other players across the country, all the guys that go out in Range Rovers and like encourage kids to take up the game and run camps and train coaches and all that, like all that sort of stuff that makes the sport. It's all generative, but like Twickenham pays for all of it because that's the way that in the economy that we have, that's the way that money gets concentrated. And like it's the same for Ireland, but you can't just spend all your money on where it's generated and go, well, this is where all the money is. It's completely justified because everything else just falls apart eventually. And you end up... You end up going in at 7 o'clock in the evening asking Shane Ross for 30 million euro and getting told to fuck off. But the Cappuccino Cowboys and frothy form at the moment, their second try 